Welcome back, everyone. We've got such a lovely group of folks to chat with you today. Mm -hmm. Um, We are speaking with Denny Roberts, independent consultant and author, Gail Spencer, director of the Illinois Leadership Center at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and Ryan Satterwhite, director of the Office of Service Learning and Leadership at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And these three fine folks, in addition to being leadership educators that have come through kind of our lovely student affairs higher ed world, they are part of the International Leadership Association's Committee for the Advancement Mm -hmm. of Leadership Programs, which sounds super official and so important. And I would love for Brittany to tell us a little bit more about why we've invited them today. Yeah, I will I'm peeling by the curtain. So um, Dr. Kathy Guthrie, who was unable to join us today, but sends her best wishes and regards. She serves as the chair of the committee and her and I were in conversation about um, kind of, you know, our podcast and what we're talking about here in leadership and context and really the overall mission of the NASP Leadership Podcast, which is to make leadership scholarship and resources and pedagogy approaches and other places more accessible, right? Like how do we get them in this way that you don't have to read a hundred pages of something to know what's going on in our field. You can listen to 30 minutes while you're in your drive for work or while you're traveling um, in other places too, to make it more accessible. So her and I got chatted about um, CALP, as it's lovingly called, the uh, Committee for the Advancement of Leadership Programs and her work with ILA and these principles that they're working on, which are so important. And we talk, um, we'll talk extensively about in the episode with these brilliant humans, but the the principles is this really high level kind of, again, jokingly on the balcony version of doing really good leadership work, but making it really accessible, right? You don't have 150 standards you have to look at or whatever it may be. It's kind of these big focus areas, these big content areas that let them get more nuanced as they think about um, some critical questions to consider, um, implications for practice, um, and and really with an international context, right? As we think about the globalization of our um, campuses and our fields and our conversation on leadership, how important that is. So as we're thinking about that, I'm really excited to have these three brilliant humans on to really just give us insight to what is this work? What should we be looking for? Um, Melissa, I know we really, you and I really focus on um how should we be using it with other resources that already exist or we know are emerging or maybe need a little updating, right? <laughs> or other things in there too. So that has to be used together. Um, before we dive in, we did want to acknowledge we we in the conversation jump right into the good content and uh, didn't really frame um, the International Leadership Association or ILA, which is a critical part of this conversation. And for folks that may just not be familiar um, with that or maybe new to leadership and just haven't heard of ILA. So ILA is a professional association that serves leadership educators as well as leadership scholars, leadership researchers organizational and community positional leaders, um, leadership coaches and developers across industries. So they've got folks in business and military. We've got um, friends from across the globe that come. We were just in Vancouver uh, less than a month ago and had uh, went to presentations in Australia from Australians and Canadians and um, just a multitude of international voices that come there. Um, the one thing really is, is beautiful about ILA that you'll see in their spaces is they believe that leadership is the key to a just and thriving future for all people. Um, and really for the last 25 years have really focused to do that. So that context will be helpful as you hear this conversation about ILA and CALP and the many acronyms that come into this work. Um, Our scholars are really wonderful at breaking those down for us, but really wanted to make sure we gave a good high-level overview of the mission of International Leadership Association because it is so integral um, to the principles that they talk about extensively today too. Yep. I love that. 
So even if you've never heard of ILA before or looked at any of their resources, here's here, here are three wonderful people to tell you that absolutely the work of ILA is relevant to your work mm-hmm. um, as a leadership educator in the context of higher education um, and will certainly serve as a wonderful complement to some of our other tools and resources and um, community groups and associations. Um, and so we're excited to have you learn from them today. Yeah. So as we think about leadership in context and the ways it keeps playing out in this in this season, and especially as we hit the kind of the mid-year mark with this episode, um, I think it's really fun that we get to pull back to a really, really high level of an international context where we've gotten some more nuanced context as we've gone along. Um, but I'm excited we get to really pull out at the mid-year point to say, like, how do we do this in a global context, right? <laughs> and in a much larger space of that. Um, so w- without further ado, let's get our guests. Mel, I'm excited for today. I am too. We have three amazing guests and we're so excited for y'all to meet them. So, so excited. So I guess without further ado, we should let them introduce themselves. Who wants to go first? (laughs) I think Denny should go first here. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to call me out that that soon. That's That's not fair. Well, uh, Good afternoon, evening, uh, whatever time of day you're listening to us. Uh, my name is Denny Roberts, and uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. And uh, I am, quote, semi-retired. I don't like to call myself retired. I'm semi-retired. So I uh, uh, had a career of over 40 years in higher education in various settings in the United States as well as outside of the U.S. And uh, I'm now an independent consultant and author. And uh, I, I love being involved. And so uh, whenever I have a chance to continue to shape uh, leadership and how we look at leadership, uh, I do it. So uh, I guess that's how I ended up being involved uh, in this call today. And uh, I do call myself a leadership educator and very proudly so. Uh, I, I started this journey in 1976, which is way before most of you were born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that journey has taken me to some wild and crazy places, both in terms of physical locations as well as intellectual uh, and identity places. And um, that's what I've absolutely loved about being a leadership educator. It is a, it's a specialty within student affairs and more broadly in higher education that you can take with yourself. Uh, you can take anywhere with you, you know, into many, many kinds of roles. And that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed being a part of it. So that's who I am. I love that. And I totally agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who wants to go next? I think I'm going to do that. My name is Gail Spencer. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. My current uh, work is the director of the Illinois Leadership Center at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The question, in what ways are you a leadership educator? I think I'm a leisure, leadership educator in every facet of my life. Somehow, sadly, maybe not sadly, I think about leadership all the time. And it's in the world today, there's so much bad leadership. I, I'm just always watching, very try to be very observant. Um, my journey in leadership education started in the 80s when I worked in student activities. We started to develop leadership programs at all the universities I worked at. When I went to Kansas State University in the 90s, 
Um, that's when the Staley School of Leadership Studies was developed. So I was an adjunct faculty member and was in a lot of really robust conversations about what a leadership program would look like, what a minor would look like. And it was really my honor to be a part of that group. I was an adjunct faculty member there for about 15 years. Um, the other things I've done, I am currently serving as the president of CAS, which is the Council for Advancement of Standards in Higher Education. I also chaired the Standard Review of Leadership, Education, and Development. So that was really excited, exciting. We um, at the University of Illinois have been participating in the multi-institutional study of leadership for many, many years. And I worked with a group of people to get a Big Ten consortium started so we could compare data amongst our institutions. And I've also was on the task force that, that made these guiding principles. So I've done a lot of different things and leadership has been my, I think, greatest enjoyment in my, in my years in higher education. That's awesome. Those Big Ten reports, I use those all the time. Like all, even before I was working at a Big Ten institution, I was like, y'all got to see what the Big Ten's pulling out in these MSL reports. Yep. Right on. Love it. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here today. My name is Ryan Satterwhite, and uh, my pronouns are he, him. I serve as director of the Office of Service Learning and Leadership at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, I was an undergrad at the University of Arizona at a, at a fortunate time when they were just launching their Arizona Blue Chip program. So I was an inaugural member uh, right. in that, and it ended up being completely transformative for me um, and was really the only thing that kept me at that institution um, and in school. It, it uh, completely captured my imagination. And I had this one... Uh, a transformative couple of months in 2003 where I attended, thanks to some faculty mentorship and support, um, the National Leadership Symposium. I went to a national session of leadership uh, and went to my first ILA in a couple of, uh, you know, all as an undergrad uh, in a couple of months span. And those three things just really solidified for me this trajectory that I've been on ever since and the opportunity to, um, you know, put uh, a humanizing face and personality to all the names on my bookshelf and meet everyone <laughs> and realize mm -hmm. that uh, they're people like me and that maybe someday I might be able to do something like that was was incredibly special. So I've been doing this work ever since. Um, so I kind of mark my entry into the field uh, around that 2003 period. Um, so this was a, a, a fun year for me for ILA's context. It was my 20th anniversary mm. for attending ILA, which was really oh, great. Cool. Um, so it's such a pleasure to be here. I think around that time, actually, Denny, you were, you were brought out as a consultant to the University of Arizona. So I think I met you for the first time um, at about that period as well. So, yeah. yeah. That's that's crazy, and and the the links you know across time are are what's so important in this conversation today, mm -hmm. because this conversation is uh, not a contentious conversation. It's uh, it's an an additive conversation, mm -hmm. uh, and I think what's so important for student affairs people in particular to understand is that 
the commitment to leadership learning uh, has been there really from the inception of the field in the early 20th century. And it began to be most explicitly addressed uh, in the late 1970s, which there were a variety of interesting historical things occurring at the time. And it made uh, all of us basically say, wait a minute, we've been kind of doing this organically and we need to be more intentional in what we are doing. And that's really where the idea of comprehensive leadership programming came from was the late 70s, the idea of inclusive leadership, so non-positional as well as uh, positional, uh, needing to be inclusive of various types of people. And those kinds of ideas really came from student affairs educators. And we contributed those to the conversation, which then enlarged over time as other entities within higher education became more interested in leadership. And I, I don't say that as a, I, I guess I do sort of say it as a matter of pride, because I think that this is something that we have really uh, brought to the higher education community as a major priority. And the things that Gail and, and Ryan are mentioning, I mean, the, uh, the early work of ACPA and working also with NASPA in terms of, we had a, a model, a comprehensive model of leadership learning that was published in 1981. And that 81 book then became the foundation for the creation of the CAST standard, uh, which was then published in 96. Mm -hmm. uh, and has been, it's been included, the language is still there. I looked at it this morning, which is crazy that the language that we were using in the late 70s and early 80s is still a part of it. And frankly, that language also then eventually migrated into the ILA uh, model. Uh, and it, you know, it's embedded in the social change model. Uh, mm -hmm. All of these things uh, are threaded. And because I'm the oldest person in the room here, uh, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's been a profound privilege to be involved in literally all of those. Uh, from the from the beginning with the ACPA task force, the association work, uh, the standards, the social change model, uh, and then now to be a part of ILA. And what I think is interesting about ILA, and this may transition a little bit, I think, into where we're going with this. Uh, ILA, when it first formed, did not really explicitly include student affairs educators. Mm -hmm. uh, right. I was... I was there at the minus one conference, which was at University of Southern California. And Barbara Kellerman, who is a good friend and colleague and I love her work, I literally went up to her after the meeting and I said, Barbara, these conversations are wonderful. And you're not including the fact that there's a bunch of us out here that are in student affairs education roles that are contributing to this. And to her credit, she said, well, let's fix that. Let's, fix it. let's do something about it. And so uh, we went to work and we pulled lists together. And this was back in the old days when you use mail and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, pulled a list. And I, I tell you, the first conference that was held at ILA, student affairs educators were there in full measure. Mm. And they have stayed there. And I think that's one of the reasons why ILA is such a, an interesting place. And CAS is critical because it addresses our student affairs world branching out in a comprehensive way, 
but ILA was the first time we were really able to influence the uh, academics uh, that were interested, and that became then uh, the shared uh, learning with them. So I really value the fact that ILA has joined the conversation, but that doesn't replace at all mm-hmm. student affairs focus. It's simply a complement, and I think a way to actually, uh, you know, improve our work. You know, to make it better. So, but those that lineage is very, very important and very, very fun. Yeah. That evolution mm. is really important context for our conversation today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and that and then the conversation, the point you made early on about the additive, right? Like the additive of there continues to be more things that come in, right? In this international perspective, I think is what Mel and I are both really excited to hear about what ILA is doing um, to not only keep threading all this together, but the additive of um, taking it beyond kind of our Western or uh, U.S. context that student affairs typically gets trapped within. So we're excited to hear all the things, but it's a good transition to our questions that we have for you all. All right, so this is a great a great point for us to maybe focus on kind of where we are now. Um, and so for, you know, for our listeners who probably have varying degrees of maybe familiarity with ILA, the International Leadership Association, and while they may identify as student affairs educators with leadership education kind of roles or identities, they may or may not be familiar with the work that ILA has done and that student affairs educators have done in that space in ILA. So that's maybe where we're going first. So what even what even is this committee that y'all are on? Um, I believe you could call it CALP, the Committee for the Advancement of Leadership Programs. So what what is it that you do? And um, maybe how does that connect to the other kind of documents or other initiatives that maybe have been spearheaded in the ILA context related to the work that you're doing today? Well, I, I would uh, like to draw attention to the fact that actually the, the general principles, which is what the, the document we're talking about is the ILA general principles for leadership programs. Actually, the first three pages in it provide a really uh, important written context about where this thing came from. So uh, particularly for those of our, our listeners, you really need to go out to uh, the ILA website, download the, the paper, and uh, and you can get a good written history of where this came from. And, uh, you know, uh, Ryan was actually involved in a group that was convened first. And so, uh, Ryan, why don't you talk about the, the guiding questions and where did that come from? And that really kind of set the stage for the later general principles. Uh, how did you get involved with that group, Ryan? By raising my hand too easily. Uh, yeah, so that was a pretty, you know, pretty early in my career. And I certainly wasn't central to that process, but I was involved in the conversations. Um, and at the time, there was a, a really heavy debate going on within the association about um, kind of the, the direction of how to or whether or not to standardize and formalize uh, things like program review or even accreditation, which is mm-hmm. kind of dirty, dangerous term sometimes. Mm-hmm. For sure. um, but it was a very hot uh, debate that showed up in in a lot of spaces within the association um, in, in those years. And so uh, I wanna say 2006, seven, eight, nine kind of period 
um, there was a group that was brought together uh, to um, not necessarily to chart a path forward, but just to really kind of seriously consider the options on the table and to and ultimately ended up crafting um, what was the uh, the guiding questions. And it was meant to be a really accessible, open-ended resource. Um, for any leadership program, uh, curricular or co-curricular, uh, to help um, in facilitating some good kind of self-work, uh, whether it's in the creation of a brand new program or in a critical review and evaluation of an existing one, um, a reimagining uh, of, of a leadership development or learning experience. Um, the guiding questions were intended to be um, this kind of accessible resource that could help facilitate that process. Um, and they're still with us. They're still freely available on um, the ILA website to members and non-members um, and it, it are, are still a valuable resource. Um, that ended up being uh, you know, a couple year uh, process uh, and then they were ultimately, you know, published and shared with with the association and more broadly. And then sometime later, there was another group called back together, which I believe um, Denny uh, here was directly involved with as well. That ultimately created the kind of a, a, a 2.0 version almost, which is a slightly more structured document around the ILA general principles for leadership programs. So it's a direct follow-on from that earlier work around um, the guiding questions. Yeah. yeah. It, it, I was it, involved in that too as well. Yeah. Yeah. Gail. Yeah. And and that the the transition to the creation of that committee was kind of interesting because uh the conference of the International Leadership Association that was held in uh in Florida uh, Barbara Kettleman was a keynoter, and uh, I had corresponded with Barbara about a book that she had written about professionalizing leadership, uh, and uh, she was going to be keynoting, and somehow we got into this conversation about, you know, what has ILA done to try to advance the idea of standards of practice, and I said, well, we have this guiding questions thing. And so I, I gave her the document and then she included it in the speech and basically admonished the ILA members that were there at the conference and said, look, you created this great document. Why didn't you do anything with it? And <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, wow. And like it was kind of the room was kind of tense for a moment. Oh, I remember. Oh, <laughs> it was yeah. a moment. It was yeah, my yeah. first ever ILA. I was like, is this how this goes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. You know, that was a very catalytic moment, and it really did demonstrate the ambivalence that ILA had about advocating that anything that looked like standards or accreditation, but at least ILA at that point was based, was ready to say, okay, look, we'll, we'll take a look at this, try to figure it out. And, you know, the deliberation process that Gayla and others were involved with, you know, we, we struggled back and forth in terms of how do we really articulate something that has meaning and has substance to it, but avoids the question of standards because there was so much pushback about that kind of idea. And uh, I, I think that the, the general principles, we don't know where the general principles are going to go. I mean, with, this is an iterative process. 
you know, there, there will probably be something that will come after this. And I don't know if there'll ever be a day when it'll look more like a standards movement. Uh, I kind of, I, I really can't even guess uh, whether it will go down that path. But the, the point here is people committed to improving learning about leadership. And with ILA, the other difference about ILA is that ILA isn't just educators. Right. It involves people in business. It involves right. people in government, nonprofit. So you're you're talking about a, a a paper, the general principles paper, which attempts to address all of those areas. And that's actually one of the things that we're not exactly sure as a CALP group how that's going to work, because. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we probably recognize our own bias in that the general principles probably apply more easily to education than they might to other areas, but we've got to test that and figure that out. We we don't really know just yet. Well, the other part of that to me too, Denny, is that we have CAST standards for leadership, education, and development. And I think um, when I came to that group, I was, how do I say this, not concerned that there'd be some kind of um, push to have these standards that were different than what CAS had. But the way that this landed was these are bigger guiding questions and CAS gets into some more of the specifics. So it actually is a really great way to look at things from a little higher level. And then you can look at it um, more granularly. So those two things coming together actually worked out quite well, in my opinion. Well, and the two documents reference each other. So the CAS standard references ILA and ILA references CAS. So you have clear communication that these are complementary processes, not competitive processes, which yeah. is very important. One of the things that I'm thinking about too, as y'all are talking about this, is even within the context of um, leadership education and student affairs work, I would... I. Maybe I'm going to roll that back. I'm going to even step back from saying student affairs work, leadership education in the context of higher education. We, as the, as the field has grown and diversified, we know that a lot of the folks who identify as leadership educators today aren't working directly in an office of leadership programs or with, with something maybe that sounds quite as formal as maybe it would, it, it originally maybe would have started in our profession. So I think about all of our leadership educator friends who are working in academic advising or who are, you know, faculty members sitting in disciplinary contexts or um, who might be in at, you know, campus recreation or, or health and well-being, right? And, and to what I really, I know I personally have loved about the, the ILA work that y'all have done is that because it's kind of, it takes a broader lens on some, some general principles, guiding questions, it feels like um, you can more easily kind of shift or pivot for what you need, because it's not, you know, if I'm not working in an office of leadership programs and my entire job isn't just designing workshops or conferences or a, a lecture series related to leadership, then these the these general principles are still very applicable to what I do. I'm thinking about just um, giving feedback this morning on a chapter around socially just leadership education, and they were listing in a section of all the things in the last two years that have come out as far as resources and guidebooks and books and chapters and podcasts and all these things. And it's with a beautiful moment where I was like, oh, there's so much being out of the conversation. 
But again, I think about my practitioner friends who are like, I don't have time to read all these books and articles and look at the newest research. I think about these like larger questions and principles are much easier and tangible for folks that are like, I have, you know, an hour between meetings where I can look at something that can help me guide um, a conversation with a student or a program or something I need to facilitate on leadership education, not being a quote unquote expert. So I think about how useful these can be to really take the balcony approach, right, of um, how do we get to the highest level to talk about it in the in the biggest way? Well, but well, yeah, I, I think you've you've also kind of led us down this path, which is exactly the purpose of this this committee for the advancement of leadership programs. Is we were charged by the ILA board and being brought together to mm-hmm. explore the active use of these general principles in a variety of um, settings and sectors and international contexts mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know, the, the the general principles were published uh, as a white paper, uh, a highly collaborative process, but still, you know, a limited group yeah. that had been brought together to, uh, to generate this document. And I think a major part of uh, this committee's uh, mission is to support as many people as possible in as many diverse contexts as possible in the use of the general principles so that um, we can explore its strengths and potential limitations as well as Denny mentioned that this is an iterative process. Mm -hmm. We aren't at the point yet of talking about a next version, but I'm sure that will come at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, So our purpose right now is to help people um, learn about the general principles as a free resource um, and also to actively support them in their use. So one of our uh, tasks, uh, kind of directions over the next year that we've agreed to is um, to explore how this committee can actively support um, some folks who are raising their hands and want to use the general principles in different um, educational and programmatic contexts, both within and outside of higher ed. Amazing. You actually brilliantly led to what our our next question is. So the season of the podcast that we're doing is really focused on leadership and context. How do we explore different contexts that leadership education, learning, and development is happening in our spaces? Um, And really a a huge reason why Mel and I were excited to have you all on is that this this work you're doing is under the International Leadership Association, um, assumingly, uh, meaning that it's got some international context and influence, um, as well as reach and scope. Um, and even maybe beyond just international specifically, but diverse um, approaches and perspectives to the work you're doing. So can you all tell us a little bit more about how international or diverse influence and perspectives show up in CALP and these in these guiding documents you're creating? I did a, an interesting uh, experiment this morning. I uh, word searched in the CAS standard and in the ILA general principles for the word international. Hmm. And guess what? It wasn't mentioned that often (laughs) in in either of those documents. But I think specifically why it is not mentioned in the ILA document is that it is assumed. Mm -hmm. And basically what the, the ILA general principles assert is that we live and learn in an international context and therefore leadership learning specifically must be set in an international context. So, Brittany, when you say, you know, the, the context, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very key. And uh, internationalization is not a special case anymore. I mean, people used to be able to think of, you know, study abroad or some kind of an international leadership ex- uh, learning experience. 
as being the, the special experience one might have, we can't afford to do that anymore. We have to have curricula and co-curricular experiences that demonstrate to students each and every day they live in an interconnected international community. And what that means is that we have to work harder at cultural understanding, cultural respect, cultural appreciation. And we also need to examine uh, the, the bases of power and influence and colonialism in our world. Those are very powerful things when you start to talk about international leadership. And I, I was very, very pleased when I was doing the word search in the ILA document. And there's a particular portion that's in what's called content. Uh, and there's different sections of the ILA document, but the specific one on content uh, gives some very uh, direct questions uh, about internationalization and how international context should be considered. So uh, I was I was pleased to see how explicit that is, but I think what's important here is to understand that the ILA document helps us understand the world as it exists today, not as it's going to be, mm-hmm. as it is today, which is that we are internationally connected and we're not really doing our students a, a service if we don't integrate that international perspective throughout uh, all of our leadership learning. Uh, so context is is real key, Brittany. I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you you know identified that as a, as an essential aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about you know um, being at the University of Maryland now. Melissa and I were talking about this the other day um, in a campus that is so close to the nation's capital, and so many students that are bringing in such diverse perspectives, um, and a lot of international students that are taking, especially leadership studies program. Um, really seeing how essential it is to pull in perspectives that are not um, kind of our canonical understandings and, and theories. And we knew that, but I think especially now um, students are knowing better to advocate for for that too. So I think we have to have leadership educators that are more prepared, equipped, and know where to find resources um, to go beyond kind of our Western U.S. higher ed um, four-year brick-and-mortar campus context around leadership. Well, the other part to me about that is I work at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. 22% of our undergraduates are international students. Mm. So the whole campus is very different than, say, working at a campus in Kansas or Nebraska. Mm -hmm. So there's a different challenge on top of that where you're still at really predominantly white campuses. When you have a chance to bring students together to a campus, how are you going to get them to think about that, even if the current environment they're in isn't as diverse as it might be when they go to a workplace or go work internationally somewhere. So there's kind of two challenges there to me. Totally. This also really parallels, I think, what we're seeing in um, in our HESA context, our higher ed student affairs grad prep programs, mm-hmm. overwhelmingly um, seeing international applications to those programs. And so when we think about preparing like a next generation of, of leadership educators who come through our kind of background, shared background of student affairs work, a lot of those folks are are from, from other places other than the U.S. And they might stay here in the U.S. To, to do that work as educators, and they might go back to wherever they are originally from to do that work in another country. And so um, when we think about even just the in the in influx of, I think, international perspectives from lived experience of folks in our line of work um, and, and how 
it's not just an imperative for teaching the students about this, but that the people who are actually going to be doing this work alongside of us, who are doing it now, are coming from um, increasingly diverse backgrounds globally. And and learning about international questions is uh, it's very importantly based in the combination of what's happening in your head and then what's happening in your experience. Uh, having worked abroad in Qatar for seven years and having hosted different groups that would come to visit us in Qatar, it was absolutely fascinating how there would be these international study groups that would come in and they they brought their cultural perspective with them and didn't even recognize it. You know, so there's there's all of the kind of the, the superficial observation that led to kind of very quick conclusions about uh, about difference. And it, it was just such a wild departure and contradiction of what we try to teach about diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. domestically. And then you would have American students coming over and making all sorts of premature judgments about culture just on uh, the basis of a very shallow observation. And so learning how to make this a deeper process is a journey for all of us, whether you were faculty, staff, students, all of us are on this journey of, of understanding, you know, what that um, what that involves. Uh, and there is a, I, I'll give a shameless plug for uh, uh, a, a book that will be coming out in January. Uh, Darby Roberts and Ravi Abhinan from uh, University of Delaware uh, have done an edited work. And there is a chapter in there uh, on what should be done in terms of leadership education in U.S. campuses that will better serve international students. And uh, I co-authored that with uh, Awi Yamanaka, who is an international scholar. And uh, we had a lot of fun in the chapter. And we actually use the ILA general principles to evaluate what we should be doing actually in uh, creating leadership experiences for both international and domestic students together. Uh, that was the, the point of the chapter. And uh, I was delighted to see yesterday a, a piece about University of Delaware, where they have a group that they call uh, World Scholars, uh, which is a, a full four-year experience. And I, I, I liked it so much because it's a, an undergraduate program. Granted, it's a smaller population, smaller number, and I, I hope that they can uh, scale it out so that many more people can be involved with it. But it involved deep preparation, you know, for understanding internationalization. Uh, it included uh, interacting with international students on the campus. It included a study abroad experience. Mm. It included a variety of things that really would provide the opportunity for students to really, really examine what does this thing internationalization really mean, you know, and how is it going to affect mm. our lives? Um, these things are, you know, it's it's not an easy task but a lot of it has to do with us adopting a, a cultural humility and curiosity so that, in fact, people can then begin to really enjoy, you know, international communities. And so many of our campuses in the U.S. and uh, I know University of Illinois is, is a leader in terms of the proportion of international students. And I uh, but I know that even when there's a, a large number of international students, the interaction sometimes doesn't really occur very much. There's kind of an isolation and a cocooning that occurs 
and you miss all of that learning potential uh, because people are not curious and humble, you know, in terms of the way they approach each other. Yeah. And I, and I do think that our, um, even our best efforts, I think as leadership educators to, uh, try to create, um, inclusive educational experiences, but also to talk about leadership in more inclusive ways. I, I think we, we often fail at that, right. Because we're not quite sure how, how, how to do that. Um, and we do to that phenomenon that you're explaining Denny about students, um, international students, not kind of self-selecting out, right. Or not feeling comfortable to join, um, or participate in a lot of the programs and experiences that we might run as leadership educators. Um, we see that phenomenon, I think in leadership education all the time, as does the rest of the campus with other types of programming. And so, such an important thing for us to be thinking about. And I'm glad that you all have found that the the principles have have helped us to maybe think um, a little differently about the way that we're setting up educational spaces as well. I'm gonna move us forward because I think um, this is a good point to maybe loop back to something that Gail had mentioned earlier about the way that we might make use of um, something like the guiding principles alongside something that maybe our listeners are a little more familiar with, which, which might be the CAS standards for leadership education and development, or other such tools. I mean, folks on this call, we've already mentioned things like the multi-institutional study of leadership, mm -hmm. or if they're using other types of assessments or standard documents from a disciplinary area, mm -hmm. how do we how do we help leadership educators start to make sense of what what the use cases are for these things and how we might use them complementary um, rather than thinking we have to choose one and only that thing. I could take the, the first uh, crack at that. I think um, for a lot of people, everything is just overwhelming. You look at these documents, I printed them out this morning. They're both 30 pages long. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And um, when we talk about how people use CAS, just start with something, right? You don't have to do it all. Uh, in the guiding um, principles, pick one of the areas, context or content or learning, and look at that and look at the questions. And with the CAS standards, there's 12 parts. Just start with one or two and look at them um, and kind of divide it up so it's not so overwhelming because looking at one part of either one of these is better than never using them at all. And there's also people available. One of the things we're doing with our CAP group is we're now piloting the usage of these um, principles with groups so that we can see how they're using them. We can use them as examples. And then we can help other people say, if you're looking at this for your whole campus, if you're looking at this for your department, if you're just a person to kind of have some ways that we could do that, we might start, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead here, offering coaching programs and mm -hmm. uh, to help people with that. And with the CAS standards, we have a lot of ways. We have a self-assessment guide. We have um, we, we have a, a workbook that's coming out soon. And then this is an easy as contact me and I can walk you through anything and help you figure out how you can start to use it because that's the most important part. Have any of you seen like really like strong examples of folks using these these documents complimentary or um, maybe not a, a if you don't have an example at the top of the head, like ways that you're thinking that that might play out for a particular program or experience or office? 
Yeah, I'll I'll jump in here with something that hasn't been mentioned in the conversation so far yet, which is the new Carnegie elective classification. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Add it to the list. Yeah. And (laughs) so there's which which, um, you know, some folks listening may or may not be familiar with yet because it's so new. Uh, It's just in its first cycle of applications under review uh, in the coming months here. And so this is a new elective classification, just the second that Carnegie has ever put out. Uh, called Leadership for Public Purpose, and it's an opportunity for institutions to do a critical self-study about their um, commitment to and work around leadership development, specifically for public purpose, as a framing lens. But one of the things about that process is that it doesn't necessarily prescribe a particular model or framework. It asks the institutions to be internally coherent and clear about their approach to that work. And I think that that's a space that the uh, general principles could really help structure as as universities are going through this self-study process. Um, And if you're at all familiar with kind of the the history of the elective classifications with community engagement, having launched, I think, in 2006, so it's been around for almost 20 years now. And, and similarly, I think in another, let's say, decade, when this leadership for public purpose classification has been around for longer, it's going to be a really strong uh, influence in the field and something that leadership educators uh, in staff and faculty roles are going to be familiar with and are going to be asked to help contribute to as their institutions commit to pursue this classification. And so I think that that's another kind of crossover point where um, both CAS and the general principles can provide some of that intentional structure that the Carnegie elective classification is asking institutions to demonstrate. Yeah, that's a great point too, because when I think about the process of a Carnegie Carnegie classification self-study application process, to your point, it's an institutional endeavor and there may or may not be um, leadership educators kind of at the helm of that initiative at their institution, depending on how large their institution is or the how decentralized it might be, right? And so um, to be thinking about ways that we as the leadership educator community can um, be as resourceful and strategic as possible about helping to contribute to that conversation I think about things like the CAS standards and about the, the guiding principles as being um, particularly helpful um, in, I guess, showcasing like what we have to contribute to a larger institutional conversation about leadership education um, for for communities of folks that really care about leadership but might not really understand the work we do every day with programs and curricula kind of on the ground with students. Right. Yeah, and I, I think there's a real opportunity here for leadership educators to leverage just the existence of this classification mm-hmm. to spark some needed conversation. And, and it provides some, um, I'm hesitant to use the word legitimacy, but that, that I'm, uh, that's what I'm going to land on for, for the time. <laughs> uh, it, it, lands, it, it lends some weight to the work that mm-hmm. we're already doing with students on campus, because now we have something to point to, regardless of whether or not your institution is actively pursuing it, just saying that, look, this is just the second area that Carnegie has highlighted in their elective classifications, and it's challenging institutions to demonstrate um, 
an intentional coherence and direction in all that they do around leadership education, I think that's a really strong platform for leadership educators to stand on and to help organize broader work across their campuses. And and the, the leadership for public purpose uh, elective uh, doesn't include any reference to internationalization at all. It isn't there. Uh, and that's why if you're <laughs> applying for Carnegie, you almost have to use the ILA general principles to inform the content. Because as, as Ryan is saying, the the uh, the elective allows you to have kind of the institutional context and institutional commitment and, and those kinds of things. But it does not specify that general purpose also relates to advancing international understanding. It just isn't there. Uh, right. And uh, so, you know, I, I think this is a. You know, people don't often think about international educators on your campus as allies, uh, mm -hmm. either for student affairs, people to see them as allies or leadership educators to see them as allies. But I'm telling you, international educators are awesome. And you know, <laughs> they've got a lot of energy, a, a lot of curiosity, and they're looking for people to help them advance their objectives as well. And so uh, if I were a leadership educator on a campus today, one of the first groups I would reach out to is international education folks and basically say, hey, listen, I know you're interested in this subject area. I think we I think we can do a partnership where both of us are really going to uh, uh, come out on top. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think it's a wonderful link for us between those those two areas. I love that. And what a good example of a way that leadership educators can um, be the catalyst for connection on their campuses. I feel like we often play that role because mm -hmm. our work spans so many spaces on campus um, and so many communities of, of students and faculty and staff on campus. So um, to be thinking about how using documents like the general principles can even catalyze, right, a conversation like that, saying, have you, like, sharing something like that, sharing something like the CAST standards um, to start a conversation across campus, I think is, I, the number of times I feel like that I've heard leadership educators in the student affairs community say things like, I'm trying to get all the leadership educators on campus to, like, come to a meeting and mm -hmm. chat with one another, and how, and and the, the for lack of a better way of saying it, just how hard it is <laughs> to do that, um, or to, or to make the case for why it's important. It makes me think about documents like what we're talking about can can really help, to Ryan's point, add some legitimacy to the work that we're doing and why we're calling people together to really consider it in deeper and more thoughtful ways, um, rather than just saying, well, we all do similar work, so we should probably be in a meeting together, um, mm -hmm. is not quite as compelling. I think a lot about what some of this conversation is leaning towards. I think actually a huge theme I saw at ILA this last year at the global conference um, was that we're no longer teaching theories anymore. We're like, this class is going to cover the social change model and this one will cover emotionally intelligent leadership. It's much more of like, we have to adapt by using pieces of all of these models and theories together to really 
navigate complex problems. And similar to what Kayla was saying earlier, like just start with somewhere. And it can be overwhelming to have all these avenues. And Ryan even had another one to our list that we had forgotten about and thinking about all these avenues. But what, how can we pick something from CAST that helps and make sense and moves our conversation forward? How can we pick something from the ILA um, principles? How can we look at Carnegie to even be informed about what the conversation is headed towards? Um, and I think it's similar to giving the advice we tell our undergrads, right? Like you don't have to know every element of every theory and model we teach you. It's being able to have the, the language and the skills and the resources to be able to have them in your pocket or in your toolkit for when you go to navigate these complex problems. I guess on that note, we have one last question for you. I know we're getting kind of close on time, so we don't want to keep you too long. Um, but I think this is kind of where the conversation was headed. And I think Melissa was getting us there of what's your hope for the principles, right? Like what is, as you're looking ahead, I know Gail had given us um, some good spoilers and maybe resources that are coming and, and pieces there too. But if you're talking to leadership educators, if you had a room full, which is somewhat what the podcast is with listeners, if you had a room full of leadership educators that were like, what do you want us to do with this? What's the hope? What's the trajectory? Um, where can we expect these to go? I think uh, one thing that we haven't really mentioned yet is just the exact timeline here. So the, the general principles were published, I believe, in 2000 and, or 2021, uh, if I recall. And so- February 2021. Yeah, so so they're, they're very recent. Um, and I think that we're still at the early stages here of, um, of demonstrating and collecting stories about their use in a, in a wide variety of spaces. So, so that, I think that's the point at which the committee's at right now and that we're so excited for is the opportunity to support, actively support and identify their use in a, in a wider variety of educational learning and development settings and sectors and contexts um, so that we can begin to tell the story more effectively of uh, just how helpful they can be in in that broader context. So I think in response to the question of what's my hope for the general principles is that they're they're really useful. <laughs> and and I think that we have intuition and some early data indicating that they are, but they're so young and they're so new still that we're um, we're actively collecting that use case uh, and kind of impact work right now. So we're inviting others to join us in that. Yeah. And in addition to that, if there's ways we need to think about things differently or ways to make these better, we want to hear hear about that as well. Yes. Because yeah. as Ryan has um, intimated, eventually these will be updated. Uh, so it's important for us to give feedback about, you know, people's reaction to them as well. You know, the, the question you're raising is... Uh... Pretty profound, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, my my head is kind of grapple with uh, you know what 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 do we hope you know what do we think we're we're doing with this and uh, you know two things that I land on and and these become kind of personal I think and one is uh, I don't like to go to work unless I know why I'm there I mm -hmm. I, I need a reason for being mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, Leadership has always given me that. Uh, it's it's always given me a way to understand the fumbling attempts I've made to work positively with colleagues. It's given me a reason for uh, understanding the way that I work with students and I advocate for their learning. So it's the reason for being. And then the other thing is that something that I've struggled with throughout my career is 
the uh, dysfunctional bureaucratization of higher education. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's just such, such clear evidence that we have created models that were really based in mid 20th century industrial industrialization kind of paradigms. Mm -hmm. And we're still operating as if that's the way we ought to work. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? You know, we live in a different world than the industrial era. And our organizational models need to reflect the uh, permeability, the flexibility, the interdisciplinarity, uh, all of those kinds of things. And I, and I really do think that leadership educators, and I, I think you mentioned this before, Brittany, or I may have been one of the others of you, but the whole idea of this focus on leadership being a catalyst mm -hmm. to bring people together. Uh, and, you know, I, I really value having been a student affairs educator in addition to a leadership educator because we kind of occupy a third space we're, we're kind of the odd person out in many conversations. Totally. And we complain about that. But you know what? That's where change occurs. Mm -hmm. It always occurs at the margin. It never occurs in the center. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's really cool that we kind of dance, you know, outside of the central circle. But yet we, we can be a catalyst, both as leadership educators and for those of you that are student affairs educators, uh, that would be my greatest hope is that we would be able to help transform higher education, both in the United States as well as worldwide in terms of helping us get to a more functional model. Mm -hmm. Change occurring at the margins. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. There's a very funny little book that I read a number of years ago. It's called uh, Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Uh, <laughs> and it's a hilarious book. And it's it's written about the Hallmark uh uh, card business mm. and they created what they called and you may have seen them way back when people aren't buying cards anymore because we're doing it all via uh, technology but they had the shoebox brand and that was a hallmark card and they were kind of these zany crazy sorts of things well what happened was that hallmark realized they were losing market share and they needed to figure out a way to be able to keep the card industry uh, alive so they created the shoebox entity and then basically had them fly out in orbit and be a separate brand that was basically connected to Hallmark, but they were in the third space. Mm. So they could do things differently than the rest of Hallmark cards was doing. And I've I've just loved that analogy for so, so long. And I think student affairs educators, leadership educators were probably orbiting the giant hair ball. <laughs> and maybe- that. Maybe that's a good place to be, you know? I think what a good, very good place to be. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Great way to reframe the mess of bureaucracy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and what a, what a note to end on, too. The giant hairball, a perfect ending. <laughs> we just want to thank you all for joining us again. I feel like, we, unless I say this a lot, but we, I really feel like I've had a lot to continue to noodle on and in my own work and how um, we can continue to promote these principles and and hopefully have a lot of listeners. I know um, our producer, Derek, is going to make sure we have the document linked in the show notes and other places too, so that um, folks have access to y'all and your resources, but want to make sure that we help get it out there in the ways that we can. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's been a great thank, conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great conversation to join with, with uh, beloved colleagues. So I uh, yeah. really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Killer. 
fighting the good fight and doing the good work. So keep it up. It's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Thank you all for your work and for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Let's stay in the orbit. Stay in the orbit. Stay in the orbit. <laughs> awesome. What a conversation that we just got to be a part of. I know. I, you know what I appreciate? I appreciate so much about the three of them, mm-hmm. but they, they're each of their careers have entered into leadership education at a different point in like mm-hmm. the field's history, which yeah. I think is so important, right? We heard Denny give a lot of historical context, which yeah. was so helpful. Uh-huh. Um, and then you think about Gail kind of coming into the, to the picture um, kind of down the road and also entering from kind of like a student affairs, student activities lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ryan in kind of a later generation, uh, he was an undergrad. I didn't yeah. know that. Well, and we That's talk amazing. about this too, right? Like even just the slight difference in, in it, like age with you and I, right. That, that yeah. you were of an era where you were able to take undergrad leadership courses. And yes. that was not something that I even experienced. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we think about Ryan coming in under the, like the first iteration of the Arizona blue chip program, like you said, yeah. um, and for those that don't know, that was one of like the, that was the the groundwork for Corey C. Miller's student leadership competencies yeah. work that she has spun off and done all kinds of wonderful things with, if you're familiar with that, with that, that body of work. But that started with kind of in the context of that Arizona Blue Chip program back in the day. So mm-hmm. um, I think seeing that lineage and knowing, knowing the history there is important, not because we, not to that, to their point, not because you try to like, I don't know. I don't know, not to celebrate the people, but to like, mm-hmm. to understand the journey. I guess. Like, yeah, the trajectory the and the, th- yeah. Denny kept saying threading, right? And it's exactly yeah. what it is. Like it, and I think so many times when we're teaching um, these works, it feels, it almost starts to feel like a history book in some ways, right? Of like, it's like the yeah. social change model came here and then this came here and then there was industrial, there was post industrial. Like we start doing it in this very like, where it seems like there was like a start and an end. And it, it is so much more of the thread that Jenny was talking about. I, I joked with you um at right after the call. I was like, I felt like when Jenny was going through that history and, and a lot of it I knew, but I had never heard it told in that way of, again, the thread of how it all works and the people and the relationalness. Because I felt like I became a listener and then I like forgot and came. So listeners probably heard me be like, oh yeah, <laughs> come back to life. But I was like, yeah. I was so entranced and just being able in my brain to think through again, these ebbs and flows and threads and the people and, you know, and there's names that you certainly hear throughout that. But then like you said, these entry points where these people start becoming a car- part of the conversation and continue them in beautiful ways, I think was th- that really stuck with me at the beginning of how important that is. Yeah. And for all you listening, I think one of the other really big takeaways for me that um, I know I find, I think is super important. And I'm so glad that these three reiterated it is just, or it's actually two things. One, the role that student affairs educators in particular have played in the advancement of leadership education professionally as a field cannot be understated. I mean, it is our people that have advanced this work, the notion of you know, college student, graduate student, in the context of higher ed, that the learners in those spaces need to be explicitly thinking about leadership, learning about it, in addition to practicing it, and then reflecting on it. Like that, that has been the work of student affairs educators, 
doing doing that and 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 advancing leadership education. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. Well, and speaking of the thread, right, that's our last episode with Jonathan and Trisha, where they talk yes. about like student affairs has to make leadership education a priority as well. Not just leadership is this big overall competency, but specifically right. the work of leadership education as well. Right. And then I think the second piece that comes out and, you know, me with my NCLP lens is like super yeah. into this, that this, this work, this, this initiative to advance and evolve the field of leadership education is happening across associations mm-hmm. and even more importantly, in connection together. I mean, we just talked with three folks who at this season of their life primarily identify, you know, as members of the ILA and have been mm-hmm. invited by ILA's board to do this work. Like that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And all three of those folks have engaged in all of the various associations that we and our listeners yep. engage in, right? They have been, and probably are, NASPA members. They have mm-hmm. been ACPA members. They have attended NACA conferences. I mean, Gail's background in campus mm-hmm. activities is through NACA. Um, and so I National think- National Leadership that, Symposium that is now Absolutely. LES. There's a throw. Mm-hmm. Right. Shout out there from Ryan to the to the Leadership Educators. Yes. Right. <laughs> I mean, this, this work happens in just across all of those kind of artificial boundaries that we put up around associations and institutions Mm -hmm. and functional areas. And I think this conversation and the fact that those three folks were the ones who, who joined us for it and are the ones who are doing this work um, as charged by the board of ILA um, is just such a testament to that, that ethos of leadership education and leadership educators. Something Gail said, it was a small comment, but it really stuck with me of thinking of the she said it towards one of our last questions, but that just start somewhere. And it sounds so silly, but I think so often folks get hung up in, um, I can't like, I don't understand all the ILA principles, but then they also reference CAS. So I have to buy CAS and then try to understand all CAS before I can even do any, right? Like, do I have to, do I need to have a whole degree in leadership studies before I can even try these things? And when she said that, she said, just start somewhere. And I think it's absolutely true, right? And again, the comment I made about the ILA conference is a ton of people were presenting on like, how do we use bits and pieces of theories, models, programs, practices, pedagogies to craft a program that properly serves the audience, whether it be students or not for folks outside of education. But then even thinking about, I got more meta and thought about our podcast, right? And like why we did Leadership in Context is because we don't need everyone to work in a college of engineering or in like a science field like Natasha and Darren did. But we think that they could probably learn things from their conversation that will translate and make it more accessible. And thinking about why I like doing these podcasts so much is because we just got so much information in like 40 minutes from three brilliant scholars that save people probably 150 pages of reading, right? And, and like, okay. just we just made it accessible. We made it digestible. We're able to ask questions that say like, actually, how do we do this? Rather than having to read, you know, hundreds of pages of content and then finally getting maybe an implication section where it's like, and now <laughs> that we've maybe lost right. you in some of the words, how do we get to like what you need for practice? And I think about, um, I always have a big heart for folks that are coming from a grad program into like a first-time coordinator role and they're like okay so I'm supposed to do leadership what is leadership how do I do education like what is leadership development for college students um and I think about those folks listen to this podcast and I hope that they find these kind of 30 to 40 minutes of like here's a resource a context that can trans transfer beyond um as particularly helpful so the the gale of just starting somewhere like I hope for some people that's this podcast it's be like how do I even look for like know what to look for um to start this work well, and maybe I'll I'll close out our closing thoughts by saying mm-hmm. um, just some tips for for our listeners around that too, right? That 
one, the the documents we talked about today from ILA, the the um, guiding or sorry, the general principles and guiding yeah. questions are available for free on ILA's mm-hmm. website. And Derek, our amazing producer, will be linking that in the show notes yeah. so you can have that direct link to to be to download those documents and start mm-hmm. to flip through them. And to Gail's point, just pick pick an area to start with and familiarize yourself. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Another plug I'll give is that if you are a member of NCLP, which you know, it's free. You just join yeah. the listserv. It's free. If a you're community a member, member. Yeah. right? You can, you can contact us and we will give you a code to get the CAS standards for leadership education and development mm-hmm. for free as well. So mm-hmm. if you would like to do that, um, be sure to reach out to us and you can get a copy of those CAS standards. Um, and then of course, all of the, we have all kinds of information and resources to connect you to all the things that Brittany and I have been talking about and that our guests today talked about, um, on NCLP's website as well. Mm-hmm. That's part of what we do is connecting folks to resources and associations and PD opportunities and standards mm-hmm. guides and all of those things. So, um, be sure to check out the website if you haven't already. Yeah. That third question you asked me all about, like, how do we do this all together? I was thinking of NCLP being that place, that like landing place for so many people to be like, I need something. What do I need? Let me find one webpage where they'll tell me where, where things exist and where they are. And, and I, so I won't ways. pretend, I won't pretend to have all the answers. NCLP doesn't pretend mm-hmm. to have all the answers, but it is certainly a great organizing tool for you to just start to mm-hmm. think through and, or, and, and figure out where to go next. Right figure yeah. out where to go next and click around a little bit and in a, maybe in a more thoughtful way than just Googling something. Yeah. <laughs> the toolkit and a guidepost. And in many ways, that is what, what folks need. And again, just the, all the things that they're trying to balance, it's, it's trying to find the starting point. So awesome. I'm feeling excited at the end of this conversation too. Me too. Thanks y'all. See you in two weeks. We also hope that you'll join the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and our leadership educator friends from around the country and the world at this year's Leadership Educator Symposium, December 13th through 15th, 2023 at the University of Tampa. Our topic this year is liberatory learning and leadership education, exploring the philosophy and practice of co-construction. Find out more and register now at nclp.umd.edu forward slash programs.